Esther made for this moment. I, I think some of you who have read the book in the Old Testament know that one of the key verses of all the book of Esther is chapter 4 and verse 14, where Mordecai says to Esther, as she's been made queen, but who knows but that God has raised you up and put you in such a place for such a time as this. We're going to see how Esther becomes the hero of our story. Esther, who became the wife of Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, who was ruling over half of the world at that time. Let's do a quick review of last week, because we're in week number two of this series in Esther. Last week, you recall that it was about 480 years before Christ. It, the, the story does not play, take place in Israel. It takes place in the kingdom of Persia, in the capital city, the citizel, the fortress city of Susa. And King uh, Xerxes is there. He was giving a large banquet for his rulers and his nobles. He requested his queen Vashti for her to come and appear and parade herself before all his drunken nobles and rulers and military officials. And Vashti, at that point, she stood up for herself. She was one of the original women activists of the scriptures. And she said, you know what? I'm not going to demean myself. I'm not going to parade myself in front of this group of drunken men. So she refused the king's command. And the results of that, she had to pay a tough price because the king banished her from his presence forever. She was removed as the queen of Persia. And of course, that decision begins the drama, which brings Esther into this place of influence in the kingdom of Persia. So Esther agrees to banish Queen Vashti and he listens to his nobles. They say, hey, why don't we create this ancient beauty contest, so to speak, and uh, we'll bring all the beautiful women of the kingdom here into your harem in the citadel of Susa, and you can meet each one of them, and you can decide which one of them you want to become the next queen, right? So now, after all of that back drama, we meet the two heroes of our story. The heroes, of course, are Esther, the woman, and her cousin, Mordecai. Both of them, of course, were Jewish. Uh, it says here in verse 7, the two heroes of our story, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah was her given name. Remember, Hadassah means myrtle tree in Hebrew. But because she was going into the palace and because Mordecai wanted her to hide her identity, he changed her name. Mordecai says, don't call yourself Hadassah anymore. Call yourself Esther. Hide your ethnic identity until perhaps the time might be right to reveal it. So he had a cousin named Hadassah whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Esther was an orphan. And this young woman, who was also known as Esther, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So what do we know about Esther so far? Well, we know she's beautiful. We know that she had been born Jewish and raised Jewish by her cousin. Uh, we know that when the king decided to have a beauty contest, that Esther uh, certainly was one of the top candidates chosen uh, to represent the city of Susa in this Persian Empire, in this context, in this contest. So if you recall, the nobles' advice to the king was this: Let the young women who please the king 
be queen instead of Vashti. There was going to be one woman chosen by the king. He would interview a bunch of them. He would probably do more than interview them. And he would then choose who was going to be his king. So the advice appealed to the king, and King Xerxes decided to follow it. Uh, the other name for Xerxes is Ahasuerus. So now Esther goes to the palace. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa, and they were put under the care of Haggai. Haggai is not the same Haggai the prophet in the Old Testament. This is a different, this is a different spelling. Haggai, he was a eunuch uh, in the service of the king Xerxes. He was in charge of the harem. And Esther became friends with this uh, official. She pleased him. She won his favor. Now, think about this. In all the kingdom of Persia, when the, when the book begins, it shows how vast the Persian empire was. Uh, scholars think that half of the world's known population were part of this empire of Persia at this time in the 5th century BC. There were 127 provinces. Um, Xerxes sent out Pony Express riders all throughout the land, all throughout the province, all the way from India in the east to Ethiopia in the southwest. And yet, by God's providence, his future Queen Esther was right there in the same city in Susa, in the capital. Now, Esther and her ethnicity. I told you that Mordecai said, uh, Esther, you can't be Hadassah anymore. You need to change your name. Well, not only did Mordecai want Esther to change her name, it says in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, you might ask yourself a question. Why would Mordecai, who was a Jew, why would he be so concerned that his cousin, his younger cousin Esther, when she goes into the harem in, in Susa, why would he be so concerned that she not tell anybody that she was Jewish, right? Since the Jews had been in exile under the Babylonians since about the year 600 BC, the Jews had been living in this part of the world for about 120 years now. So, you might say, well, it, wouldn't they have assimilated? Wouldn't they have become accepted by their people? They were immigrants, but now generations had passed. They should have assimilated into the country. Uh, why would Mordecai warn Esther, hey, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish? Well, this verse right here tells us a lot about the Jews who were still living in this pagan empire of the Persians. The Jews were not popular. They were not given equal status. They were obviously second-class citizens. And I suspect because the Jews believed in only one God, one creator and sovereign over all, whose name was Yahweh, and they didn't believe in these foreign gods. They didn't bow down to these foreign gods. The Jews became a peculiar people. They became kind of like, you guys are strange. Your, your religious customs are weird. Well, we don't like you. You're different. You act different. You separate yourself from the rest of society. And that probably brought them a lot of reject, rejection by the Persian culture around them. So it's highly unlikely that King Xerxes, by the way, if you think about it, who would he choose to be his next queen? It would be really unlikely for him to choose a Jewish woman if he knew she was Jewish to be his next queen. So Mordecai says, hide your identity. Don't tell anybody who you really are. He would want 
her to be a Persian like himself. So this minority young girl, Esther, Jewish, chose to keep her ethnic identity a secret. That's part of what it means to live in two worlds. So Mordecai, her cousin, is obviously concerned. Uh, Esther was taken against her will. I mean, let's, let's don't candy coat it here, folks. Uh, Esther was taken. She didn't volunteer. This wasn't like uh, a notice went up and a poster on the wall of the palace that said, hey, the king's holding a beauty contest. If you want to enter, volunteer yourself to enter. No, I think the king's officials just came out and said, whoever is a beautiful young woman that you think the king might like, take her and forcibly bring her into the palace. So Esther, not by her own choice, but by what God allowed to happen, she was brought into the harem of King Xerxes. And of course, Mordecai is concerned for her. I'm sure he's praying for her. He maybe didn't want this to happen, but now it's happened. Mordecai says, well, if God allowed this to happen, what might he do with Esther in this situation? I mean, he could even start dreaming. What if Esther, of all the women in the harem, what if Esther is the one that's actually chosen by Xerxes to be queen? Wouldn't that be amazing? So every day, he, Mordecai, in verse 11, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. He's walking back and forth in front of the courtyard of the harem every single day. I mean, you talk about a helicopter parent, right? I remember when Lisa and I went to Azusa Pacific University when our son Tyler entered there as a freshman. This was back in 2008. And they sat us down. They had all the parents of all the incoming freshman students sit down in this big auditorium there in Azusa Pacific. And they, and they said, we want to communicate a message to you parents, but we want to show you the short video first. And all they did was they showed this video of this young person standing there and this massive helicopter comes in and starts to land right near the person and the wind's blowing and the rotors are moving and it, it's just like that. And then it basically, says, don't be a helicopter parent. Don't be a helicopter parent. Well, that's certainly the way Mordecai was acting, right? He was very concerned about her. He was uh, checking up on her progress. Mordecai wanted to see if Esther was indeed finding favor with those who were in charge of the harem there with the king. And I'm sure that in the midst of all this, every day that Mordecai would walk by the palace, he was praying for his young cousin. I'm sure he was praying to God that God would grant Esther grace and favor with the king. You know, it's very interesting, only about 40 years later, there's another Jew, another Jewish man. His name is Nehemiah. He is in the same city of Susa, perhaps walking near the same places that Mordecai was walking 40 years before. And Nehemiah was praying to God for an opportunity to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You remember that, right? So Nehemiah is praying there in chapter 1, and in verse 10, Nehemiah finishes his prayer uh, as he's cupbearer to the king, and he says, Lord, give your servant success today by granting him favor with this man. Now, that man that Nehemiah was talking about was King Artaxerxes, who was the son of this King Xerxes that Esther is going to become his wife. 
So guess what happened? I mean, of course, God answered Nehemiah's prayer, but God was also answering Mordecai's prayer. Mordecai must have thought that Esther had at least a decent chance to win this beauty contest, if you will, to win King Xerxes over and perhaps become queen, right? It wasn't her choice. She didn't sign up for the beauty pageant. Some official saw she was beautiful. They came. They picked her up, possibly against her will, brought her to the palace, whether she wanted to be there or not. But now that she is in the palace, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing to have the God of Israel's favor, to have this young Jewish woman in the capital of a pagan empire actually win the favor and approval of the king over the entire ancient world? Think about you. What about you and your prayers as you're asking God to move things in your world? Have you ever prayed? Have you ever asked God to, for you to find favor and blessing, either to find blessing and favor where you are in your circumstance, or maybe you're interceding for somebody else and you're praying for them. God, please grant them favor and success and, uh, and win an open door for somebody that you love and care about. And here's the thing. What if God answered that prayer? If God answered that prayer, you said, Lord, I need grace and favor with this. Maybe it's a job interview, or maybe you're, you're in a dispute with somebody and you're trying to reconcile, or you're, you're, you, you've been, <laughs> you're, you're in trouble with the law or taxes or whatever, and you're just asking God to find grace and favor for you. If, here's the question, if God answered that prayer, what would you do with it? What would you do if God said, yes, I will grant you grace and favor? Would you be selfish with it, or would you realize that perhaps the reason that God is blessing you so abundantly at this time is so that you could be in a position of influence to take that blessing from God and then become a great blessing to other people who might be in need? See, that's why I think God was answering that prayer for Esther. Because he said, I want to put you in this position of influence because I know what's coming down the road. You don't yet, Esther, but what's coming down the road is going to be so life-threatening to you and your people that you need to be in this place of influence in order to turn things around. So let's go back to Esther. What if your prayers were answered? Well, let's see. When the term came for Esther, who is the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, she was the daughter of his uncle Abihail. When it came time for her to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Now, does this young woman not show intelligence or what? She finds out from the king's eunuch, from the man who's in charge of the entire harem, she says, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to bring. I don't know what to take for myself. Uh, can you give me some insight? What are the king's preferences? What does the king like? And maybe she could help win his favor that way. So she's very intelligent. She only did what the king's eunuch suggested to her that she do. She was smart as well as she was beautiful, right? He, Haggai, based on a lot of experience and observation of the king and his likes and his dislikes, this official was able to give good advice to this young woman, Esther. 
And so, in verse 15 and 16, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. It gives us an exact time period of when all this was taking place. Remember the story, friends, we're not talking about a myth. We're not talking about Aesop's fable. We're not talking about some fiction writer that imagined this and said, once upon a time in the land of Persia in the 5th century B.C. No, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, they were an historical account of God's dealings with his people. To the Jewish people, it only mattered what really happened in history. So this really happened. This isn't a myth or a fable, right? One of these providential moments when God just paved the way for this young Jewish woman, Esther. He gave her natural great beauty, but he also gave her character, and he gave her a winning personality. He gave her favor with the leader of the eunuchs in the palace. Um, by the way, here's the historical background of what was happening. You know, this was what was happening to Esther, but just recently, what had happened in the life of King Xerxes. Four years before, when he had that banquet, King Xerxes, he was trying to rally support for a regathering of all the armies of Persia, and he was going to take that army of Persia, travel all the way west to Greece, and he was going to attack and conquer the Greeks. Why? Because Xerxes' own father, Darius the Great, was defeated by the Greeks 10 years before in the Battle of Marathon. So Xerxes is going to avenge the humiliation and defeat of his father. Well, what happened? Xerxes takes a huge army, goes back to Greece. That's where the movie 300 happens, where the Spartans decide they're going to block that pass of Thermopylae. And for two days, an army of 300 Greeks fought off the Persian army until they were betrayed and defeated. But what happened later on was there was a great battle of Salamis, the sea battle, uh, during this naval battle in which the Greeks sunk over 200 of the Persian ships. Xerxes uh, then left. He, he decided, you know what, the, I, I've lost my interest in this. He left. He went back to Persia, left his army there. His army the next year was defeated by the Greeks, and so they were defeated and humiliated one more time. And here's the thing. I don't think the Greeks ever forgot about this foreign invader coming in twice, 10 years apart to try to take over the Greeks. And a young man came along named Alexander the Great, and he just said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to conquer the entire world, and we're going to defeat the Persians, and he did, about 140 years after this took place. So that was, that's what was happening historically. Let's go back to Xerxes and Esther here. Xerxes is fresh off a humiliating defeat. Of course, this man would, would seek to be comforted. He wanted to give his attention to the selection of his next queen. Let's get on with life. Four years had passed since that incident with Vashti. And so now Esther finally meets the king, right? So here we are in verse 17. Now the king, he met Esther and he said he was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. She won his favor and his approval more than any of the other virgins, and so he set a royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Wow, talk about a semi-fairy tale coming true. All the women 
before Esther spent a night with the king and they were sent back to the harem the next morning. No thank you, but not so with this young Jewish woman, Esther. What was different about her? Well, perhaps in her conversation with the king, Esther must have stood out as refreshingly different from the other women. Maybe he saw her intelligence. Maybe she was well-read and educated. I believe he noticed her character. All these things, it wasn't just her beauty, I believe, that really impressed this King Xerxes. And so, here we are. In a short time, Esther is now elevated. She began life as an orphaned Jewish girl. She was adopted by her cousin Mordecai, Hadassah. And in a short time, she is now receiving a queen's crown to be placed on her head. And she's now married to the king of the entire known ancient world, to Xerxes. Once again, you see the sovereign hand of God, quote, behind the scenes. That's what providence is all about. The name of God isn't mentioned in this book of Esther, but the providential hand of God is evident because he was giving Esther favor and approval. He was moving Esther into a position of powerful influence. So there's one incidence of God's providence, allowing Esther to not only meet the king, but to win the king's favor and become queen of Persia. Let's see another example of the providential hand of God before we finish chapter 2. Let's shift over to Esther's cousin Mordecai, right, and get life from God's perspective. By the way, when you see God's perspective on how he elevates somebody in, into a position of influence and power, notice what the psalmist says right here. This is from God's perspective. The psalmist was summarizing what happens when someone receives God's sovereign favor. He says in Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, it, the psalmist writes, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings down one. He exalts another. Sometimes you think it was just good luck or bad luck where you ended up in a position of influence or you were demoted or something like that. Please remember there's a sovereign hand of God behind you in your life. It certainly was behind Esther in her life and also in the life of Mordecai. Asaph is the author of this. He was a leader in King David's Levitical choir and he writes these words. It, Man doesn't get exalted. It doesn't come from happenstance. It's not from the east or the west or the desert. Man cannot just exalt himself. It is God who judges. He brings down one. He exalts another. And so Esther, she didn't try to erase or forget her heritage. She just kept it on the down low until the time was right. She continued to listen to those around her who were giving her wise advice. There's another sign of intelligence and a sign of character is know from, from where you can get good wisdom and good insight and good direction in your life. You know, Proverbs, the, the, there's a whole book dedicated to wisdom. It says over and over, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Whatever you do, get wisdom. Treat wisdom as if it's gold and silver and jewelries and precious stones in your life. Because wisdom will allow you to make great decisions in life that will bring blessing and not harm to your life and to those around you. So Esther 
had enough wisdom to listen to godly counsel. She listened to her cousin Mordecai, and she listened to the head of the eunuchs of the harem, Haggai. So as she was listening to their wisdom, she continued to hide her Jewish race. It wasn't the time to reveal it just yet. Look what it says here in verse 20. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Mordecai had not steered her wrong before. He'd only done good to her. He was a great blessing in her life. She listened to his wisdom. He said, now's not the time to reveal your ethnic identity. Uh, keep it secret until a later time. So Mordecai felt it was best to keep her Jewishness under wraps. Maybe he thought at the time, and you're certainly going to find out with, with this Haman, this anti-Semite, this hater of the Jews who comes along in the next chapter 3, that there was an anti-Semitic temperature that was building up around the Persian Empire. And it was going on in the culture around Mordecai, and he sensed it, and he said, Esther, it's not the time to draw attention to yourself and who you are. Uh, it's interesting, uh, I was been reading a second book. I told you about this one book by Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil called The Roadmap to Reconciliation when we did our last series on God's people, a biblical view of, of racism and injustice. And by the way, I, I, I do want to say getting the donuts this morning at Safeway, one of the bonuses was I looked across the street and there is a great sign, a great poster in front of the United Methodist Church. And I know the pastor there. She's Tongan, and she's a wonderful lady, Eunice. And in the poster, it says, United Methodists Against Racism. This huge sign on the wall there. And I thought it was beautiful. And I said, I'm with you, um, <clears throat> Eunice. Okay, Dr. McNeil, she writes about how people of color have learned to adapt in a majority culture in which there was people that had power and people that were powerless over people who could oppress and the people that could be oppressed. And she said, when you're in the minority and you don't have power in the culture, when you are a disadvantaged race, there are just things you don't do in that culture among the majority. It says, you don't advertise your race, you don't speak up, you don't try to be noticed, you keep your head down, you look over your shoulder a lot, you're somewhat anxious around authorities. Do you remember the, the, the talk? They, they say that all the black parents give to their kids. Hey, if you get stopped by a police officer, you, you maintain your composure, you're quiet, you answer questions politely, you keep your hands on the steering wheel for they can see you, don't make any sudden, sudden moves. They, they give a, a, a talk to their black uh, adolescents as they are beginning to drive that the white parents don't have to give to their own white students, all, uh, their white kids. Although I will tell you, I did give that kind of a talk to our kids. It's like, hey, be polite. Don't make a scene. Uh, ask what the problem is or maybe what you did, but, but talk to the officer in a calm and respectful way because we are always to respect authority. But when you're a disadvantaged race, you had better do that or you are going to stand out and you could be singled out and oppressed. So because Esther, she learned to respect her cousin Mordecai's wisdom, she remained accountable to his leadership and to his mentoring even after 
Esther became queen, even after she was the top woman in the palace there in Susa. She believed, she trusted Mordecai. He knew how to help her and how to protect her. And we're going to see later on how Mordecai showed courage when he discovered a plot to assassinate the king. And this, this is another example of God's providence. God, when you say God's providence, sometimes the way providence works is you just happen to be in, quote, the right place at the right time, right? So if you find yourself in a position like that, then God is allowing you to be there for a reason and for a purpose. So cousin Mordecai, he's going to do something now by God's providence that will also grant him favor with the king. He just doesn't get favor with the king immediately. It's sort of like a timed release favor from the king. So here, here's the thing. It says in verse 20, 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So he's, he's over there um, as an official. He's, a position, he's in a position of influence. He's checking up on his cousin Esther. He's at the king's gate. Look what he overhears. Two Persian men, uh, Big Thana and Teresh. Big Thana and Teresh. I'm not even going to comment on those names. Uh, two of those king's officers who guarded the doorway, they became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, question I always have out of curiosity is I wonder what made them angry. And I thought, well, Perhaps, perhaps it was uh, they got graveyard duty one too many times and they just had enough. I, we don't know what it was that they made, made them so angry. But they're talking about, here's their, their foolishness. They're talking about their violent plans out loud against the king in public. And Mordecai overhears that. It says Mordecai found out about the plot and he still having communication with his cousin Esther. He tells Queen Esther, who in turn, she reports it to the king, and she gives credit. She says, well, guess who found out about the plot? It was this man Mordecai, King Xerxes. And this is providence at work. God's hand is at work behind the scenes. He allows Mordecai to be present, overhears a conversation between two men plotting to kill the king. By this time, Mordecai has a great relationship with the Persian queen who had influence, so he could get a word of warning directly to her in time to save the king. And you know what? Uh, this assassination plot and him overhearing it and preventing it, this did two great things for, for Mordecai and Esther. The first one was Mordecai received credit for saving the king's life but also Esther got a side credit, if that's even a term. She gets side credit for reporting this important news that helped save the king's life. Interesting, and here's what's interesting. So normally what would happen, Mordecai would report this. The king would find it out. Those two people would be dealt with. And the king said, who was it that helped save my life, Mordecai? Oh, he's going to get a big reward because he did me a solid and I'm going to reward him for that. But in this particular providential case, Mordecai was not immediately rewarded right then and there for his loyalty and his heroism. God allowed that reward to be stored away for a more important time, an important time that would end up helping to save the entire Jewish race um, when the Jews would need it most. So, 
You end up with harsh justice at the end. In the 5th century B.C., uh, there wasn't much of a trial. There probably wasn't a, a, a life in prison option. These two conspirators, traitors, were just killed. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials involved were impaled on poles to tell everybody, don't do what they did or you're going to end up like these. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So that required capital punishment. They wanted to make an example of them. Uh, you remember it says in Romans 13, Paul reminds us that rulers, they do not bear the sword for no reason at all. God can even use secular records. See, this is interesting. This was a secular event happening to, happening to a secular king, but a Jewish person overheard it, uncovered the plot, helped save the king's life, and the king is going to return the favor, just not immediately. So, friends, what are our takeaways for today? Two things. One is God's favor, and the second is God's providence. Let's talk about God's favor. God's favor, friends, is something that you and I can pray for. We can pray for God's favor, but we have to leave the results up to Him. The decision of whether He exalts you or lets you stay where you are for a time, that decision is up to Him. Esther, she certainly wasn't only, she, she wasn't the only beautiful woman in the Persian kingdom. I'm sure there were lots of other women, maybe women even more physically attractive than she was. Yet she was the one who found God's favor, and it was Esther who was made queen. There's, when God's favor is upon a person, they go far in life. And then secondly, God's providence. God's providence is often, quote, like I said before, being at the right place, at the right time. God allowed Mordecai to thwart a plot and to win the king's favor because he happened to be right there at the gate when these two conspirators were talking foolishly out loud about their evil plans. Now, when you talk about God's favor and God's providence, it always reminds me of a Baptist saint. And the Baptists saying they didn't, it, this, is, this is what Christians do. We borrow from other Christians. The Baptists didn't invent this phrase. They borrowed it from a good Catholic leader. But, but it's a good phrase, and it became more popular among the Baptists. The Baptists have a practical plan for their prayers, right? They say two things about your prayers. They say, number one, pray as if it all depends on God. When you're praying, you say, God, I, whatever I can do, I can do. But right now, I can't do anything until I pray to you. Um, I remember another phrase that says, uh, after you pray, you can do something of value. But until you pray, you really haven't done anything of value, lasting value spiritually. So we need to pray. Whatever is troubling you, whatever is concerning you, you need to pray about. And you say, God, I'm putting this into your providential hands. Please take care of this for me. Pray as if it all depends on God. But then after you've prayed, the second part is equally important. Work as if it all depends on you. And then there's a third part, which I think a lot of people forget. They say, oh, yeah, everybody, a lot of people know that phrase. Pray as if it all depends on God. Work as if it all depends on you. But what happens at the end? It says, number three, when, you're all, when you've done all you can, when you've prayed and you've done all you can, humanly speaking, then you need to have the peace to say, leave the results to God. Leave the results to God. It's up to him. He's the one who exalts, 
not from the east or the west of the desert. It is God who exalts. He, he lifts up one and he puts down another. So when you're done praying and doing all you can, leave the results to God. Of course, that phrase goes all the way back to St. Ignatius, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuits. Who knows about how God wants to respond to our attitude? So when we pray, we also need to pray. This is what the scriptures teach us. When we pray, we need to also pray to God with the right attitude. And there's two scriptures that come to mind about the need to have a humble attitude before God. In James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter in the New Testament, he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So if God's going to show favor to the humble, like Esther, like Mordecai in this story, perhaps like you in your life, if God's going to show you favor, he's going to show you favor because you've humbled yourself before God. And so in uh, James, er, right after that, in a few verses later, James says, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and if you do, he will lift you up. You remember that praise song, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up higher and higher. Notice I didn't sing it. You're welcome. <laughs> Esther was elevated from Mordecai's younger cousin to become the queen of Persia. The king chose her and we'll see soon how Esther leveraged that position to help her own people from destruction. Today in your life, Friends, by God, by His providence, you and God, you could be here today. You're joining us online. You're listening to this message by God's providence. It's no accident that you're here listening to this. And if that's true, friend, then I believe God has a message for you. God has a promise for you. God is always desiring. In fact, it says that we are to pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're to pray for rulers and all those in, who are in authority that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. And then you know what it says in, in chapter 2, verse 4 of 1 Timothy? It says, For God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So one of the first steps for you to come into God's family is you have to humble yourself and realize that you're lost. Humble yourself before the Lord and he'll lift you up. Say, God, I am a sinner. I have not done your will. I have gone my own way in my life. Sometimes I've even made a mess of my life. But today you recognize that and you're saying, God, if you want me to be in your family, if you want to reconcile me to you and you've taken the step to do that in Jesus, then I want to respond to that invitation to follow you. And if so, then I want to show you a great promise from the New Testament in the book of Romans written by Paul. It says this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two things that God wants you to do to respond to his offer of forgiveness and salvation. The first is public. The second is it has to be sincere. It has to be real. It has to be a genuine decision and a, and a movement of your heart and your will. You confess publicly that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, 
Jesus died on the cross. He says he died on the cross for your sins. He says that he didn't stay dead. The, the historical record is that Jesus left the tomb on that Sunday morning, that first resurrection day, what we call Easter, and he rose from the dead and he appeared to a bunch of his followers. And then 40 days later, he, he appeared with them and he went, they went up together on the Mount of Olives and Jesus ascended into heaven. You have to believe that. You have to believe the gospel message that God raised him from the dead. And when you do believe that, then you're ready to declare and go public and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Are you ready to say that? Are you ready to declare that? Because if you are, then you can cross over from spiritual death to spiritual life. You can become a genuine member of God's forever family. Are you ready to do that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather today. Thank you for the privilege of prayer that we can come into your presence and find grace, find mercy. We can come boldly to your throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need. God, right now, for the person who wants to become your follower, to the person who says that you brought that person to such a time as this, for this providential moment, Lord, we say to them, just pray this prayer. Uh, in your heart and out loud, you say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I know that I have sinned and made mistakes with my life. I know that the wages of sin is death, but you died for my sins. And so, Jesus, I'm putting my faith and trust in you. I declare today that you are Lord, and I'm going to be your follower all the rest of the days of my life so that when this life here, this mortal life on earth is over, that I can have the peace and the confidence that I'm going to be with you forever in heaven. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for coming to earth and loving us and giving your life for us. Thank you for conquering sin and death on our behalf. And Lord, I'm putting my trust in you today. Thank you for your great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.